Chapter 18, Part 7 of Democracy in America. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve. Section 39, Chapter 18, Future Condition of Three Races, Part 7. The inhabitants of the United States talk a great deal of their attachment to their country, but I confess that I do not rely upon that calculating patriotism which is founded upon interests, and which a change in the interests at stake may obliterate. Nor do I attach much importance to the language of the Americans, when they manifest in their daily conversations the intention of maintaining the federal system adopted by their forefathers. A government retains its sway over a great number of its citizens, far less by the voluntary and rational consent of the multitude, than by that instinctive and to a certain extent involuntary agreement which results from similarity of feelings and resemblances of opinion. I will never admit that men constitute a social body simply because they obey the same head and the same laws. Society can only exist when a great number of men consider a great number of things in the same point of view, when they hold the same opinions upon many subjects, and when the same occurrences suggest the same thoughts and impressions to their minds. The observer who examines the present condition of the United States upon this principle will readily discover that although the citizens are divided into twenty-four distinct sovereignties, they nevertheless constitute a single people and he may perhaps be led to think that the state of the Anglo-American Union is more truly a state of society than that of certain nations of Europe which live under the same legislation and the same prince. Although the Anglo-Americans have several religious sects, they all regard religion in the same manner. They are not always agreed upon the measures which are most conducive to good government, and they vary upon some forms of the government which it is expedient to adopt but they are unanimous upon the general principles which ought to rule human society. From Maine to the Floridas, and from the Missouri to the Atlantic Ocean, the people is held to be the legitimate source of all power. The same notions are entertained respecting liberty and equality, the liberty of the press, the right of association, the jury, and the responsibility of the agents of government. If we turn from their political and religious opinions to the moral and philosophical principles which regulate the daily actions of life and govern their conduct, we shall still find the same uniformity. The Anglo-Americans acknowledge the absolute moral authority of the reason of the community, as they acknowledge the political authority of the mass of citizens, and they hold that public opinion is the surest arbiter of what is lawful or forbidden, true or false. The majority of them believe that a man will be led to do what is just and good by following his own interest rightly understood. They hold that every man is born in possession of the right of self-government, and that no one has the right of constraining his fellow creatures to be happy. They all have a lively faith in the perfectibility of man. They are of opinion that the effects of the diffusion of knowledge must necessarily be advantageous, and the consequences of ignorance fatal. They all consider society as a body in a state of improvement, humanity as a changing scene, in which nothing is or ought to be permanent, and they admit that what appears to them to be good to-day may be superseded by something better to-morrow. 
I do not give all these opinions as true, but I quote them as characteristic of the Americans. The Anglo-Americans are not only united together by these common opinions, but they are separated from all other nations by a common feeling of pride. For the last fifty years no pains have been spared to convince the inhabitants of the United States that they constitute the only religious, enlightened, and free people. They perceive that for the present their own democratic institutions succeed, whilst those of other countries fail. Hence they conceive an overweening opinion of their superiority, and they are not very remote from believing themselves to belong to a distinct race of mankind. The dangers which threaten the American Union do not originate in the diversity of interests or of opinions, but in the various characters and passions of the Americans. The men who inhabit the vast territory of the United States are almost all the issue of a common stock, but the effects of the climate, and more especially of slavery, have gradually introduced very striking differences between the British settler of the southern states and the British settler of the north. In Europe it is generally believed that slavery has rendered the interests of one part of the Union contrary to those of another part, but I by no means remark this to be the case. Slavery has not created interests in the South contrary to those of the North, but it has modified the character and changed the habits of the natives of the South. I have already explained the influence which slavery has exercised upon the commercial ability of the Americans in the South and this same influence equally extends to their manners. The slave is a servant who never remonstrates, and who submits to everything without complaint. He may sometimes assassinate, but he never withstands his master. In the South there are no families so poor as not to have slaves. The citizen of the southern states of the Union is invested with a sort of domestic dictatorship from his earliest years, the first notion he acquires in life is that he is born to command, and the first habit which he contracts is that of being obeyed without resistance. His education tends, then, to give him the character of a supercilious and a hasty man, irascible, violent, and ardent in his desires, impatient of obstacles, but easily discouraged if he cannot succeed upon his first attempt. The American of the northern states is surrounded by no slaves in his childhood. He is even unattended by free servants, and is usually obliged to provide for his own wants. No sooner does he enter the world than the idea of necessity assails him on every side. He soon learns to know exactly the natural limit of his authority. He never expects to subdue those who withstand him by force, and he knows that the surest means of obtaining the support of his fellow creatures is to win their favor. He therefore becomes patient, reflecting, tolerant, slow to act, and persevering in his designs. In the southern states the more immediate wants of life are always supplied. The inhabitants of those parts are not busied in the material cares of life, which are always provided for by others, and their imagination is diverted to more captivating and less definite objects. The American of the South is fond of grandeur, luxury, and renown, of gaiety, of pleasure, and above all of idleness. Nothing obliges him to exert himself in order to subsist, and, as he has no necessary occupations, he gives way to indolence, and does not even attempt what would be useful. But the equality of fortunes, and the absence of slavery in the North, plunge the inhabitants in those same cares of daily life which are disdained by the white population of the South. 
They are taught from infancy to combat want and to place comfort above all the pleasures of the intellect or the heart. The imagination is extinguished by the trivial details of life, and the ideas become less numerous and less general, but far more practical and more precise. As prosperity is the sole aim of exertion, it is excellently well attained. Nature and mankind are turned to the best pecuniary advantage, and society is dexterously made to contribute to the welfare of each of its members, whilst individual egotism is the source of general happiness. The citizen of the North has not only experience but knowledge. Nevertheless he sets but little value upon the pleasures of knowledge, he esteems it as the means of attaining a certain end, and he is only anxious to seize its more lucrative applications. The citizen of the South is more given to act upon impulse. He is more clever, more frank, more generous, more intellectual, and more brilliant. The former, with a greater degree of activity, of common sense, of information, and of general aptitude, has the characteristic good and evil qualities of the middle class. The latter has the tastes, the prejudices, the weaknesses, and the magnanimity of all aristocracies. If two men are united in society who have the same interests, and to a certain extent the same opinions, but different characters, different acquirements, and a different style of civilization, it is probable that these men will not agree. The same remark is applicable to a society of nations. Slavery, then, does not attack the American Union directly in its interests, but indirectly in its manners. The states which gave their assent to the federal contract in 1790 were thirteen in number. The Union now consists of thirty-four members. The population, which amounted to nearly four million in 1790, had more than tripled in the space of forty years, and in 1830 it amounted to nearly thirteen million. Changes of such magnitude cannot take place without some danger. A society of nations, as well as a society of individuals, derives its principal chances of duration from the wisdom of its members, their individual weaknesses, and their limited number. The Americans who quit the coasts of the Atlantic Ocean to plunge into the western wilderness are adventurers impatient of restraint, greedy of wealth, and frequently men expelled from the states in which they were born. When they arrive in the deserts they are unknown to each other, and they have neither traditions, family feeling, nor the force of example to check their excesses. The empire of the laws is feeble amongst them. That of morality is still more powerless. The settlers who are constantly peopling the valley of the Mississippi are then, in every respect, very inferior to the Americans who inhabit the older parts of the Union. Nevertheless, they already exercise a great influence in its councils, and they arrive at the government of the commonwealth before they have learnt to govern themselves. The greater the individual weakness of each of the contracting parties, the greater are the chances of the duration of the contract, for their safety is then dependent upon their union. When in 1790 the most populous of the American republics did not contain 500,000 inhabitants, each of them felt its own insignificance as an independent people, and this feeling rendered compliance with the federal authority more easy. But when one of the Confederate states reckons, like the state of New York, two million of inhabitants, and covers an extent of territory equal in surface to a quarter of France, it feels its own strength, and although it may continue to support the Union as advantageous to its prosperity, it no longer regards that body as necessary to its existence, and, 
As it continues to belong to the federal compact, it soon aims at preponderance in the federal assemblies. The probable unanimity of the states is diminished as their number increases. At present the interests of the different parts of the Union are not at variance. But who is able to foresee the multifarious changes of the future in a country in which towns are founded from day to day, and states almost from year to year? Since the first settlement of the British colonies, the number of inhabitants has about doubled every twenty-two years. I perceive no causes which are likely to check this progressive increase of the Anglo-American population for the next hundred years, and before that space of time has elapsed, I believe that the territories and dependencies of the United States will be covered by more than one hundred million of inhabitants, and divided into forty states. I admit that these one hundred million of men have no hostile interests. I suppose, on the contrary, that they are all equally interested in the maintenance of the Union. But I am still of opinion that where there are one hundred million of men, and forty distinct nations unequally strong, the continuance of the federal government can only be a fortunate accident. Whatever faith I may have in the perfectibility of man, until human nature is altered and men wholly transformed, I shall refuse to believe in the duration of a government which is called upon to hold together forty different peoples, disseminated over a territory equal to one-half of Europe in extent, to avoid all rivalry, ambition, and struggles between them, and to direct their independent activity to the accomplishment of the same designs. But the greatest peril to which the Union is exposed by its increase arises from the continual changes which take place in the position of its internal strength. The distance from Lake Superior to the Gulf of Mexico extends from the forty-seventh to the thirtieth degree of latitude, a distance of more than twelve hundred miles as the bird flies. The frontier of the United States winds along the whole of this immense line, sometimes falling within its limits, but more frequently extending far beyond it into the waste. It has been calculated that the whites advance every year at a mean distance of seventeen miles along the whole of this vast boundary. Obstacles such as an unproductive district, a lake, or an Indian nation, unexpectedly encountered, are sometimes met with. The advancing column then halts for a while, its two extremities fall back upon themselves, and as soon as they are reunited they proceed onwards. This gradual and continuous progress of the European race towards the Rocky Mountains has the solemnity of a providential event. It is like a deluge of men rising unabatedly and daily driven onwards by the hand of God. Within this first line of conquering settlers, towns are built, and vast states founded. In 1790 there were only a few thousand pioneers sprinkled along the valleys of the Mississippi, and at the present day these valleys contain as many inhabitants as were to be found in the whole Union in 1790. Their population amounts to nearly four million. The city of Washington was founded in 1800, in the very center of the Union, but such are the changes which have taken place that it now stands at one of the extremities, and the delegates of the most remote western states are already obliged to perform a journey as long as that from Vienna to Paris. All the states are borne onwards at the same time in the path of fortune, but of course they do not all increase and prosper in the same proportion. To the north of the Union the detached branches of the Allegheny chain, which extend as far as the Atlantic Ocean, form spacious roads and ports, which are constantly accessible to vessels of the greatest burden. But from the Potomac to the mouth of the Mississippi the coast is sandy and flat. 
In this part of the Union the mouths of almost all the rivers are obstructed, and the few harbors which exist amongst these lagoons afford much shallower water to vessels, and much fewer commercial advantages than those of the North. This first natural cause of inferiority is united to another cause proceeding from the laws. We have already seen that slavery, which is abolished in the North, still exists in the South, and I have pointed out its fatal consequences upon the prosperity of the planter himself. The North is therefore superior to the South both in commerce and manufacture, the natural consequence of which is the more rapid increase of population and of wealth within its borders. The states situate upon the shores of the Atlantic Ocean are already half-peopled. Most of the land is held by an owner, and these districts cannot therefore receive so many emigrants as the western states, where a boundless field is still open to their exertions. The valley of the Mississippi is far more fertile than the coast of the Atlantic Ocean. This reason, added to all the others, contributes to drive the Europeans westward, a fact which may be rigorously demonstrated by figures. It is found that the sum total of the population of all the United States has about tripled in the course of forty years. But in the recent states adjacent to the Mississippi, the population has increased thirty-one-fold within the same space of time. The relative position of the central federal power is continually displaced. Forty years ago the majority of the citizens of the Union was established upon the coast of the Atlantic, in the environs of the spot upon which Washington now stands but the great body of the people is now advancing inland and to the north, so that in twenty years the majority will unquestionably be on the western side of the Alleghanies. If the Union goes on to subsist, the basin of the Mississippi is evidently marked out, by its fertility and its extent, as the future center of the federal government. In thirty or forty years that tract of country will have assumed the rank which naturally belongs to it. It is easy to calculate that its population, compared to that of the coast of the Atlantic, will be, in round numbers, as forty to eleven. In a few years the states which founded the Union will lose the direction of its policy, and the population of the valley of the Mississippi will preponderate in the federal assemblies. This constant gravitation of the federal power and influence towards the northwest is shown every ten years, when a general census of the population is made, and the number of delegates which each state sends to Congress is settled afresh. In 1790, Virginia had 19 representatives in Congress. This number continued to increase until the year 1830, when it reached to 23. From that time it began to decrease, and in 1833 Virginia elected only 21 representatives. During the same period, the state of New York progressed in the contrary direction. In 1790, it had 10 representatives in Congress. In 1813, 27 in 1823-34, and in 1833-40. The state of Ohio had only one representative in 1803, and in 1833 it had already 19. End of section 39